thank you for coming on, David. And yeah, just to start off, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe talk to your background as an industrial designer, um, uh, entrepreneur, you know, all and all before? Okay. Um, all right. Well, um, f- firstly, um, my degree is actually in fine art. So I went to the School of Art in Hobart. Um, I finished my degree in about 1979, so a good long time ago. Um, um, so the course that I did was actually a, at the School of Art in Hobart. I was, um, uh, we did a sort of a foundation year and um, and that covered sculpture, uh, printmaking um, uh, and uh, painting and so on, various aspects of, of sort of being an artist. But um, we also, they also had an industrial designer there um, sort of doing a design sort of component and one way or enough, another, I sort of end up going down that road. Um, I was actually pretty interested in doing ceramics, um, but the ceramics lecturer kind of put me off in the sense, um, you know, so few people uh, really have a lot of success in that arena. So, um, and so um, I I opted to go sort of down a more of an industrial design path, but that kind of morphed after a while into a designer maker path. Um, basically what happened was that the college itself um, started to invite people from overseas to come in as um, as uh, designers sort of in um, sort of in-house for a while. Um, and so at the, at the so the college invited people to come in um, uh, there's a proper term for it but can't think of it right now anyway anyway so uh, we had um, these people come from the UK from Japan from America um, and they were focused on designing wood and the reason for that was because at that point in time um, there's a lot of controversy about um, the, the dams that the Hydroelectric Commission in Tasmania wanted to build in the southwest of Tasmania. Um, so sort of they'd already done uh, a huge dam um, for hydro at Lake Pedder, which had upset a lot of people, and they had their hearts set on all these other sort of wild rivers, mm. damming those to create um, hydroelectric schemes. In fact, I mean, sort of the joke in Tassie was that they that eventually all you'd see is a few sort of mountains poking up out of the water, you know. <laughs> they had a they had sort of the hydroelectric scheme was or hydro was you know, such a powerful body in Tasmania. Mm. Uh, and you know, if you've got a powerful body and you and you're good at designing dams, you know, you don't really want to stop designing dams if you can yeah. get away with it. So they'd already they'd already um, put in enough dams um, and enough sort of hydro schemes that uh, there were schemes that weren't even operational, but they still wanted to build more dams. So, so there's a lot of controversy, and and basically, um, in in um, in building those dams, they were flooding all these areas that had lots of nat- natural forests and so on. So uh, there was this sort of swing towards you know how how we would use that timber um, you know, under those circumstances. So how the timber would be cut and sort of, you know, what, how that resources could be, have the, a maximum value. And the, and the idea was that the maximum value would come from fine crafted um, products made from that, that timber. So the, the um, 
not so much. Well, the, actually, I suppose the course itself did, in fact, start to move in that direction. But prior to that happening, um, and when the course was more sort of industrial design based, um, we had done a lot of um, sort of projects. And one of those, as a student, as students, and one of those projects was, in fact, street furniture. So it was for Elizabeth Mall in Hobart. Um, and um, so, um, I was, so basically a few of our students were involved in that process of designing furniture for Elizabeth Street Mall in Hobart. Um, in my case, it was a rubbish bin, a drinking fountain, and um, and I sort of associated with the rest of the, the furniture for that project. Um, um, my part of the project won a, a design award. It won a um, Litter Control Council of South Australia design award. It got a little sort of glass apple for my trouble with a, a little silver base on it. So, so although the die really wasn't set in relation to... Um, to sort of me becoming um, focused on street furniture it was kind of the beginning of that kind of thing. Uh, I'd also done a bit of street furniture around the college as well. So I'd, I'd, um, I'd done a, a round bin with a little yellow top on it, which was dubbed the golden brick, which was a bit unkind, you know, but did have that sort of shape to it a bit. Uh, and I'd also designed um, a play structure for the college. Um, they had a crash there and I had a designed a play structure for the crash and I also had designed um, a play structure for the Hobart airport for when people or the kids were waiting for the plane and so on. So, mm. so there was some involvement there in, in sort of aspects of potential street furniture. I'd, I'd done some models for some other kind of climbing structures and stuff like that. I couldn't believe how small the, couldn't believe how small the Hobart airport was when I was there. <laughs> it's more about more of a little shed than an airport. It's getting pretty fancy now. You yeah, know, it looks but... fancy, yeah. <laughs> it's cool, but... Uh... Yeah, they're, they're, they're working on that. Uh, I think my, my my play structure is long gone. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, um, I... So the street furniture thing had come into play um, at, at, at university, but I'd also got in, interested in the designer maker thing. And as I say, these guys had come over or people had come over from these various countries as so, um, um, designers in residence, that's what they would say. Uh, there was um, Ashley Cartwright from the UK, um, Hugh Scriven from the UK, um, John Makepeace, who was pretty famous at the time from the UK, uh, some um, Michael Jean Cooper from the States, who was doing all these, his, his family had been held up in a, uh, they had a, must have had a shop and they'd been held up. And so he'd done all these kind of crazy sort of Scott, he was into sort of hot roddy motorbike things. Or something. Anyway, he'd done these sort of motorbikes with sort of guns kind of incorporated in them instead of engines and stuff. Uh, and he was doing this amazing sort of laminate, laminated sort of forms using um, sort of in space, like he was just kind of getting um, sort of bungee cord and, and, making up these laminates and then putting glue on them and then and then sort of wrapping bungee cord around them and then sort of hand forming them in space until the glue set. Mm. Um, so there were some really interesting people and they were getting staggering amounts of money for their works. So everybody thought, oh man, this is cool. You know, we could I I could do that. 
but unfortunately it's not that simple you have to sort of build a really serious reputation to get kind of value for money um for your time your hours that you put into coming up with the idea in the first place yeah and then making the thing um i had various exhibitions um of that kind of work in hobart um and um and in sydney and um I ended up getting a craft board grant to study in the UK um, uh, and to, to study design and making in the UK um, at a place called Riker Wood College, which is in a little town called Tame near Oxford in, um, in the UK. So um, I, I went there for the years 82, 83, um, and I did uh, sort of a city and guilds qualification as a craftsman. It was really more about craftsmanship than the design side of it. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we got to design a variety of um, pieces. Uh, mm. An object for the beautification of head and shoulders is one of them, which was basically a mirror. Um, but one of the really interesting things we got to do was we could we could go to the places like the Victorian Albert Museum, mm. Museum, and the curators there would um, pull out an object because one of our projects was to design um, a replica of an original piece of um, furniture from any any era. So, so someone even got to sort of um, physically touch a three thousand year old um, stool from an Egyptian tomb. Um, um, the Vienna Museum is amazing. There's such amazing artifacts in there. Yeah, and um, one of the guys did a. Uh, you know, um, Chinese chair from one of the dynasties. Mm. Um, you go into the, you know, the really big room with the massive paintings, like the, with oh, the yeah. ceilings. Yeah, I was working in there, and there's this. There was this cameraman with big like microphones set up, and when he was taking them down, he swung around too fast and knocked a massive chunk of concrete off like the balcony. <laughs> and you should have seen the look on the lady's face when he did it. He, she was like, "What? What are you doing?" <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's like a 500-year-old building at least. Oh, it's just extraordinary. I mean, you know, Tudor building facades, um, yeah. a massive sort of arm from an Egyptian, an Egyptian um, somewhere, like a whole forearm taking up multiple gallery spaces. I mean, yeah. just massive. Uh, you know, the Brits did do a big, big raid on... Um, on the world's yeah it's interesting all these all these museums that are just have all these artifacts stolen from other countries i know it's just it's just crazy um but to put into some perspective australians can be pretty silly as well because i i went to a gallery um which featured art deco furniture most of it had actually come from australia and there were things like bugatti chairs um jacques ruhlman cabinets and stuff like that like super famous wildly expensive objects and they'd actually been gathered by an Australian who had tried to give them to the Australian government, um, uh, you know, from some sort of museum, uh, you know, sort of, there was a lot of it. Um, but uh, in the end, the Australian government knocked it back. So it ended up back in the, U back in the UK or in the UK, mm. uh, in, a, in a, um, a gallery that wasn't um, climate controlled and stuff was falling to bits. And I remember I went to a gallery in um, in Paris, and they had some Jacques Roman cabinets and Eileen Gray and stuff like that. All that you know, um, Corbusier and so on. They had original pieces, and 
but the the Roman cabinet in particular, I think it was um, something like twenty thousand US dollars uh, in nineteen eighty three. You know, it's what it to be worth now, but um, it was just mind boggling. And and unfortunately, the Australian government hadn't sort of seen the value at that time, or just didn't understand mm. the importance of those objects. Mm. Yeah. Um, anyway, you know that's so so. The overseas thing, as you can hear from what I'm saying, was a pretty amazing experience for me because, um, because of the sort of art background, I spent a lot of time in galleries looking at art. I mean, you know, the British Museum, but um, um, National Portrait Gallery, um, Tate, Tate Modern, um, all the Serpentine Gallery, all those sort of places um, stick in my head, and it's a long time ago now. So... It was a fantastic experience. Um, we got to see some good bands as well, of course. You know. <clears throat> couldn't get a ticket to NXS, though, which was really, really unfortunate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but I did get to see you too as well. Just... That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I saw, I saw um, it's, it's interesting about, you know, the culture of Australia because uh, Midnight Oil were playing in Hobart, probably a month or so before I went to the UK. And uh, the concert was massive and there was, they did an after concert party in a little bar in Hobart and so on. And, you know, like they were just total gurus at the time of the music world in Australia. But I went to see them in London and there was about 20 people. <laughs> and, and most of them, there was a few Australians and a few New Zealanders and the rest were sort of people that they had met at the... At, um, at the backpackers, you know, a few yeah. Americans and Canadians and so on. Yeah, it's funny how that happens sometimes. Yeah. I went to a concert on Friday night and this DJ is like the world-renowned, uh, I think he's from Netherlands, a really mm. world-renowned DJ. And they didn't even sell out until like Tuesday this week, last week. Whereas if it was in Europe, it would have sold out in like an instant probably. Yeah. Look, it's, it's funny. I, I went to see a band called Clint I oh, no, not Clint I can't see them, but... Um, Juliet and the Licks here in Brisbane one time. Now, Juliet and the Licks turned out to be um, Juliet Lewis, the famous actress. Yeah, that's she was. And her, her drummer in that band, Dave Grohl. Oh, Dave, yeah. Uh, well, nobody kind of knew that. And so I, I went to see this thing at the zoo here in Brisbane. And there's a handful of people there. And bloody Dave Grohl was there playing the drums and playing guitar. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe it. You know, like... <laughs> it's funny how these things happen. It's pretty crazy. When I was in London, um, Dave, you know Dave Gilmore, the guitarist. From yeah, Gilmore, he was just playing like he was busking, basically out the front of the VNA when I was there. Yeah, not really busking, but he was just like there, like it wasn't a paid concert or anything. He's just playing, um, and everyone was just crowded around him, listening to him. Like, yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I, I went for a. I walk across the Sagrada Familia, it must have been in 83 or 84, and, and there was this sort of group of musicians, or what I assume were musicians. And at that stage, you could walk across between the towers. I, I, I guess you can do it now. I don't know. They're moving along with that thing. It's getting a long way towards being finished. But anyway, I approached these people, and, I, and they sort of had these crazy hairdos of that sort of period, you know, some pimply sort of girlfriends and stuff. And I said, you know, oh, you look like you must be in some rock band. And the bloke said to me, yeah, Spandau Ballet. 
<laughs> suppose you want free tickets to the concert, you can F off. Because <laughs> I didn't recognize them. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, dear, very funny. I had lots of kind of... So, so you know, I can certainly recommend the grand tour, you know, the, the, um, the, the, um, the old English idea of a grand tour. It, it really did sort of help me a lot. Um, I yeah. went to... Um, the Milan to, to Milan, of course, because yep. it was the Sotsas era. Mm. And um so it was the, the era of the Memphis group, Ettore Sotsas and all that. And they had a, a shop um in Milan that was specializing in in um in, in those those products in that in that furniture mm. uh, and also just general commercial furniture. And I got a very big and very quick lesson in in the realities of the furniture world because I, I approached the salesperson there, and you know I was kind of you know I was twenty nine I was you know kind of starstruck by the whole Memphis thing of course you know it's pretty amazing some incredible looking object. So I said to the salesperson you know do you sell any of this stuff? You know who do you sell it to? He said look we sell hardly any of it. It goes to a few galleries and a few collectors. What we really sell is this, and he took me out the back and had all this multicolored MDF commercial office yeah. furniture. And that's what they're actually selling. Yeah. I mean, you know, my my designs at the time were definitely influenced by that sort of era of um, action. Um, and the other thing that that sort of occurred at that time that sort of sticks in my mind is. That part of the deal with getting the Craftsboard grant was actually going back to Tasmania and doing um, a talk to the um, to the students, um, and so uh, and, and in fact doing a tour around Australia and talking about what I'd learned and so on. Mm. Um, but in fact, in the end, the Craftsboard uh, didn't really ask me to do that. But the college where I had been, where I'd gone to the School of Art in Hobart. Um, you know, I was, you know, put front and centre in front of the students to talk about what I'd learned. Well, in Tassie, as I, as I was saying, um, uh, there's a lot of lot of craft wood timber because of all this dam action and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in the UK, um, if you look at the history of furniture in the UK, you can sort of see there was sort of a early early period was sort of oak. Well, they cut down an awful lot of oak trees and they started to run out of trees and the trees were protected by uh, the royalty. So there a lot of the, a lot of the um, a lot of the trees and so on that, that there's a, a whole sort of structure which is kind of still kind of in place in some ways. But basically um, they sort of ran out of resources. So they, they cut down too many oak trees. So the original sort of furniture that was kind of things like um, cabinets that would hold church treasures and stuff like that yeah um chairs i mean you know usual sort of kind of things benches and so on primitive primitive and semi-primitive furniture um and as they progressed through various periods um you know they started to use elm and sycamore and all these other different species of timbers but they they there was only it's a small island that you know they run out of resources pretty quickly yeah. Um, so they went offshore, you know, and they went to Cuba and they cut down the Cubans, Cuban mahogany, and they went to all these other places. And um, so the history of the furniture in um, in the UK and it is about um, the resources that they had to actually make the furniture out of, 
and 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 sort of progression in in the sort of stylization and so on of course mm. um but basically by the time i was there they were very precious about how they used material so for example um a designer maker would make <clears throat> like dressmaker patterns out of out of um tissue paper and they would go to the mill uh, and then at the mill they would cut the timber so if they're cutting up an oak tree they cut it from edge to edge to waney edge to waney edge the whole the whole so they wouldn't waste any timber at all and they'd the designer maker would take their pattern and put it on the piece of timber to make sure that they were getting you know the maximum cut mm. and um so it wasn't conservation, you know, strictly speaking, for cons conservation reasons. It was conservation because they had to, yeah. cost of the material. Um, but they're also using a lot of veneers. And there's a guy called Fred Bayer doing some really wild, it's, it's well worth looking up. He was doing this really crazy sort of um, vibrantly coloured sycamore veneer um, pieces of furniture. He did, I don't know if you know the band Roxy Music, but he did... The furniture for Phil Manzanera's house, which was kind of like an Art Deco house and very round. Okay. Um, he did a table for I think King's College in Oxford and stuff like that. Really out, really out there kind of designs. Yeah. So, so my experience over there was to understand that, you know, the preciousness of materials and so on, and how you know, and and sort of an early understanding of conservation of materials. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, so I, I'm doing this lecture at, um, in Hobart at the School of Art, and I'm talking about, and I'm showing slides, because I've, I've re recorded all this stuff, so I've taken photos and I've got slides as you did back then, no, no, no di digital back then, just slides and so on. And I'm, I'm showing this work, I'm showing other people's work, I'm showing things I've done myself, because, you know, everybody's got an ego, but I'm showing, I'm showing mostly the work that I've seen, and, and, and I'm talking about the people I've met, and the processes they're using and um and um the lecturer there a guy called peter taylor sculpture lecturer he 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 pops up and he's quite outraged and he's you know like he's quite outraged by the talk that i'm having and he says in deference to my learned colleague here but in tasmania we use real materials you know we use real wood and i thought you know can i put it this way i thought you dickhead i mean um, you know, I'm there, I'm talking about, you know, why they've got to this point, why they're using those materials. And this, this person who's supposed to be a sophisticated lecturer is not understanding um, the, the importance, the importance yeah. of, you know, credibility, what's credible about what I'm saying. And he's, and this is in front of a group of students. This is just kind of, you know, I, I had serious words to him afterwards. I, I didn't embarrass him at the time, but I just, you know, I, I you know, I think I used a few expletives in, in my conversation with him afterwards because it was just crazy. Um, so, so all in all, an incredible learning experience. Um, and then sort of my career morphed into um, working as a des in-house designer for a variety of people. I, <clears throat> I worked for um, a company called Namco um, for a while. Um, I'll, I'll probably cut through a few of the people I work for, but <clears throat> sorry, I'm sorry about the you might have to cut that one out. <laughs> um, but um, I, I worked for a company called Namco, who were famous for doing pots and pans, um, but also did um, 
did furniture for offices and so on. So I was employed to design office furniture. And um, the interesting part of the experience was that um, I would, uh, and I mean, it's be, I guess it was before people got, you know, too excited about um, workplace health and safety maybe, but I would, I would draw things up and then I'd go down on the shop floor and I'd make them. Mm. So um, they had some, some sort of semi-automatic machines. So a lot of their work was tubular steel furniture, mm. basic tubular steel furniture. So um, one, of the, one of the tasks they set me was to make a frame out of tube that used no welding because, you know, welding costs time and money and they mm. didn't have robots at that stage. Mm. So I got this massive, big, long length of tube <clears throat> and put it in this folding machine and it sort of flew up in the air and one side and flew up in the air on the other side because, you know, in order to get to the point where I... It, so basically it was a skid-based chair, so it sort of went across, down, back, up, in, on an angle, think back and then up. So it was quite a few bends involved. Mm. Um, and they also had a machine there that would punch holes through the tube. So you had, and when they punched the hole, it would do a countersinking effect. And so you, you know, pop a screw in. So the chair was held together by um, the plywood sweep that you sat on, which had T nuts in it. You know what they are. Yep. Uh, and uh, and in the back. So the, the, the chair worked. It was, it was sort of rigid, totally rigid once the back and seat were fixed to it. But the guys on the shop floor said they couldn't do it. Now, I mean, these were experienced uh, workmen on the shop floor, and they reckoned what I what I had done they couldn't do. So that chair didn't go anywhere. Um, Maybe you need to bring it back. <laughs> sorry? Maybe you need to bring it back in 2023. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, but so I'm going through a really interesting learning uh, experience here because the other thing that happened was I designed a whole lot of new pieces of furniture and they went to the Sydney Furniture Fair and one of them won a design award. But the manufacturer, um, they, they didn't produce them. Mm. They, that what they said to me was, well, it's not a catalogue product. And basically what they had was Me Too products. So basically they would look at what other people were selling and then they'd make the same thing. Yeah. They didn't realise that the point of difference gave them an edge in terms of... Um, Firstly, the point of difference, something different, but also that they weren't in direct competition, so it wasn't sort of a fight to the bottom as far as price goes. Mm, yeah. So that that company that company failed <laughs> because they simply didn't understand the value of original design and they didn't know how to promote it. So that's kind of like an early experience of that kind of thing. Um, and um, then, so so. Um, that was probably my main sort of working experience in Tasmania. But then I um, I started to, I, I got a job. Well, I'd been doing a little bit of lecturing at the School of Art in Hobart on a part-time basis, but I got a job as a full-time lecturer at the art school in Launceston in designing wood. Yep. And um, typically of me, I was sort of still exploring the realities around, um, you know, what I was learning and also what the students were learning. So, um, I did I did two things. Um, 
one thing was I made a lot of different pieces. We had a you know full facilities there, so I made a lot of different pieces in different processes. So um, I did a, a laminated um, timber piece, um, and um, it was basically it was it was a a rocking chair for um, mothers that are um, you know, for feeding babies. So it's sort of a low rocking chair. I had a a local um, fabric artist do the fabric for it. So that was one piece. Um, I did I did a series of turn pieces on a on the lathe. I could use all that equipment then. Um, I made up um, a special mold. I made the lampshade in Japanese paper and fiberglass resin and um, and so on. So I was experimenting, um, but. Um, I was also kind of hoping that the students were paying attention to all these different techniques that I was using. Um, I did pieces with veneers because um, I'd learned that process when I was in the UK. Um, I did a fully machined um, piece. Um, I did a, um, a bookshelf for my mum, and which she, which she still has. Well, yeah. Uh, which I'm about to reacquire because she passed away a few weeks ago, sadly. Um, so, so my idea was that um, I'd be doing these pieces in front of the students uh, and I'd be showing them these techniques without actually saying, you know, you know, pay attention, watch me. Mm. It's as if I was just building things, but I was really hoping that they would pay attention. Um, now, the other thing was that a lot of these people had saved money to be involved in that course um, over a period of time. Some had worked in mines and stuff like that. So I was really concerned about them actually learning something that they could make you know, a living from. So what I did was I took them around to see um, all the local designer makers that were you know, quite famous at that stage. And there's a guy called Kevin Perkins who... Um, designed a lot of the furniture that went into the new parliament house, which is not so new anymore, but at the time. Um, and um, so he was, and he was doing churches and pews and stuff like that. He was really a very famous character at that stage. And, but he'd set himself up many years before he bought um, some land down near the Huon, in the Huon Valley. And he built himself sort of a hippie house, you know, the pole house, hand-built house. Um, He'd scored some secondhand machinery which he'd set up. So he'd set himself up. He bought a heap of timber, you know, whilst it was cheap. And he had, had this whole setup. And so I asked him about, you know, what it was like and how he'd gone about it and what it had cost him um, to, to set this up, you know, how much basically the land was and what it cost him to build his house and all those kind of things and how he'd sourced materials and so on. So he, he'd built all this stuff, you know, for next to nothing. Mm. Uh, because he was hands-on and because he'd done it, you know, back in the day kind of thing. So I said to him, you know, what's it worth now, Kev, you know? He said, oh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the point I was trying to make was that, you know, although he'd managed to get himself in this position and he was also doing a, a part-time lecturing to actually get a sort of a steady sort of income, mm. Um the fact of the matter is that for these students setting up to do to be in a position like him was going to cost them hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And that was back in sort of um 
we were talking about 1987 at this stage, so it's a, it's a good while ago. Um, and, I mean, even then, I guess, relatively speaking, it was quite expensive, you know, to set up a workshop to have all the right equipment have dust extraction. And the fact of the matter is it's sort of a lot of the glues and varnishes and even, you know, blackwood are quite carcinogenic. They're quite toxic. Yeah. It's not a very healthy thing to do. Um, and, I mean, he was, he was able to demand a decent price for his stuff, but... Um, because he was famous, but even so, he was still subs subsidising his his um, his work, his his ability to do that kind of work by lecturing. And the fact of the matter is that sort of the other people I took them to see it was a similar scenario. So um, so having gone down that road, I, I went to my head of school and I said, look. Uh, you know, I'm really concerned about the future of these students. And I think if I'm honest about it, what I really need to do is um, maybe make make a move, um, uh, go find out, you know, what jobs are available in this sector um, directly myself. So I so said, I really love to come back, um, but I'd like to come back and restructure the course around what I've learned. So, you know, how do you feel about me going away for one or two years kind of thing? said, no, no, good idea. Um, I mean, now we're talking about sort of institutions where people generally had been, had sort of got a job in their sort of 20s or 30s and they stayed there until they retired. Mm. And the problem I had with that was that there was no development. And we, we're talking about, you know, the importance of people, you know, finding a career, especially... Um, you know, when it's a full-on hands-on thing. I mean, it, you know, it's it's painting, sculpture, all those sort of things. It's it's hard, you know, it's very hard to make a living in those areas. But what what we do is kind of semi-industrial, semi, even even a sort of a, a designer craftsman level, it's still a product, it's still a thing, you know. Um yeah. and and uh, you know, people have got families, they've got They've got overheads, so they've got to support themselves. So to me, that was important. Whereas to the a lot of the lecturers at the art schools, it wasn't important because they had their 85k a year or whatever it was. They did their two or three days a week contact. They could, you know, they could afford to indulge themselves in pontificating about art and 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 the sort of things that they did and, and having exhibitions and having sabbaticals and mm. getting grants and so on. But that wasn't for everybody, that was for them. Yeah. And so I was concerned about everybody as opposed to them. And and I didn't want to be one of those guys. I could have been. I mean, it's a fantastic job. I, I was doing three days a week. I had Mondays and Fridays off, you know, and I, I, I could indulge myself and I could work in the, in the workshop and I could do things and make things and I could make money and still get my, my, my wage. But it, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't good enough. Mm. Um, and I thought, as I say, the honest thing to do is to go and, uh, you know, see where I could take this. So I went to Melbourne and, and I, I went to a couple of industrial design firms and they said my work was too arty, which was, you know, probably at the time, fair comment. Same thing happened in Sydney. I, I came to Brisbane in, um, and in sort of um, 87 and it was just pre expo in 88 hmm. and Brisbane was on a roll and they needed anybody who could push a pencil you know I mean anybody who could design anything yeah just a lot of action around um 
Expo had sort of changed the, the perception of Brisbane. So I, I got work um, up here and I worked um, with a company called Natura. And what I learned from him was that um, you could be a bit of a shyster if you wanted to be. And you could, you know, like you could, that, that um, maybe some of the clients were a bit unsophisticated and didn't really understand you know, the value of things. So you could charge them lots of money for something that didn't cost much money. And I didn't really like that either. Mm. Um, so uh, uh, the one thing about that particular um, job was that he was strict about when you started work, when you finished work for your benefit. Um, so I, um, which I, which I, in retrospect, uh, having worked for other people, I realised was a, a really a good thing, you know, that he, he realised that you needed some, you know, um, work-life balance. Yeah, I think that's an important thing, especially moving into the modern day. Yeah, so, but whereas um, um, as I continue this conversation, it wasn't always like that for me. So, yeah. so the next job I had was probably with a guy called Ross Howard and he was doing, um, he was doing, a variety of fit outs. Um, we did a fit out for Ansett Airlines as they were back then. And we did their boardroom table and um, I did their boardroom table. And I did some sort of uh, reception chairs or kind of like folding chairs, you know, um, uh, you know, with canvas. Um, and um, Swiss insurance and various others. I did a kind of a um, all sorts of interesting things, uh, including a including um, a directory board, which was like a big opening book thing for some some high rise. Um, but one of the things he asked me to do was um, the designs for furniture for um, um, uh, it was it was for um, uh, a modeling academy. And so my idea was, okay, well, you know, mum comes in with her, you know, amazingly good-looking sixteen-year-old or whatever, um, and it's and it's all about them. It's all about the you know their sense of their beauty or whatever it is, you know, in 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 that context. And so, what I wanted to do was sort of frame frame them. So when they came in, there were sort of mirrors strategically placed, and and sort of the furniture's you know a lot of white, a lot of plain furniture to um so all about that that person male or female you know if mm. like that these are uh, all about that person um uh and and not really about this the, the the space being um suitable to frame that person i suppose is what i was what i'm alluding to here well ross ross saw it more in terms of bordello-esque so ross saw it in more in terms of red velvet tassels um and i said to him mate that's just you know no i'm not doing it i'm not doing that you know that's just wrong you know mum comes in with with a daughter and and you're bringing them into a brothel i said no not doing it uh he said well if you you know either you do it or you f off he said it's the latter i'm out of here so that was the end of that job <laughs> <laughs> um 
Uh, and um, so I worked for Ainsley Bell and Murchison. They were doing um, they were doing um, various sort of shopping centres and stuff like that. And I think they employed me to see whether they actually needed to employ someone in, in, in with my skill set. I don't think they really wanted to. I think they just kind of did it. Um, and I didn't I didn't stay there that long. I did quite a lot of work for them. Um, on some projects down around Broad Beach, Broad Beach Oasis, I think it's mm. called. Um, I did a lot of the fit out for that thing. Um, but um, it was kind of like, I was trying to explain it to someone the other day. It was kind of like, you, you know, you start at the window as sort of the golden haired boy and you end up in the middle of the room. <laughs> in my case, because I was probably, I wasn't, I'm not much of a prima donna. I'm, not, you know, I'm not much of a, you know, like I'm not good at blowing my own trumpet. So, um, I, I, but I'm competent. So I would just, you know, so they realised that it was competent, but they wouldn't necessarily understand the value of that competence mm. um, because it looked easy because what yeah. I, because I was producing things fast, uh, and it looked easy. If he can do it, anyone can do it. It's kind of the attitude I think yeah. that I came up against. And that 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 pervaded right through to um, Media Five, who was the last sort of major company I worked with on the Gold Coast at Southport. And um, I worked in the interior section there, and we were designing um, for Gold Coast International, so um, and the um, Skase Resorts, um, um, so um, up, up in Port Douglas and in Surface Paradise, um, and and. The major project for me was Royal Pines Resort, which is I'm still there. And the the sort of the style of the interior designers there was more sort of um, heavily heavily sort of a lot of gold, a lot of brocade, a lot of um, a lot of silk, uh, a lot of materials like that. Um, and you know, if they used silk, they had to put backing on it, and it was kind of like. Um, I think, what did they call it at the time? I don't know, is it New York Eclectic or something? I don't know. Anyway, the long and short of it was that it was, you know, highly stylized, um, kind of semi, semi oldie worldy. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but, you know, cane, a lot mm. of materials that <clears throat> really didn't have a lot of longevity in them, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and so I opted for um, stone stainless steel, leather, um, those kind of materials um, and sort of a very contemporary kind of look um, for the project. And and um, I had a fair, fair bit of difficulty getting that through. So I would, um, and it was an era, still an era of drawing things on paper. Mm. So I was a bit wicked. I would draw things um, and um that they kind of liked and then after they'd signed the bottom of the page i changed them to what i liked <laughs> uh, and so um they ended up with a lot of leather steel um and um and stone uh and it was there for a long time most most of the projects that they would do would last maybe three or four maybe five years max mm. Um, we went down to Royal Pines Resort for my mum's 70th, I think, 70th or 80th, maybe 80th birthday. 
Um, and it would have been maybe 15 years since I'd worked on that project and the stuff was still there. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, this is the kind of stuff we need to be designing, you know, furniture that lasts. Yeah. Uh, before when you were mentioning MDF, I was just thinking like I was at um my girlfriend's dad's house last night and he had all this MDF um, plastic veneer IKEA furniture. And, yeah. it's, and it's already swelling. Like he had it, he's had it for like six months, and it's already got like random swelling on the on between. Oh, yeah, it's a lot of humidity around. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like these things just aren't made to last at all. No, they don't work in this climate. They don't work. They specifically, don't work in this climate. They're designed for European climate. A lot yeah. of them. Yeah. I mean, the 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 leather thing you know, has its issues here because mm. unless it's climate controlled, you're going to end up with mold. Yes. Yeah. Leather, leather's tricky as well, um, you know, um, and that's a lesson I've learned since moving to Queensland. But, um, I mean, I think that's the point, isn't it? I mean, everything that we do, and I think the point of this conversation with you is that whatever we do is basically, you know, a, a learning a learning process. Um, it's very, to, very hard to translate that process into a young mind. I, you know, Bernard Shaw said, you know, youth was wasted on the young and, and wisdom was wasted on the old. And it's, a, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that that is, in fact, the case. I mean, you know, we, we're in a period of wars still. And, 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 and why? You know, why, why is that so? It just doesn't just, you know, there's so much, there's so much um, uh, history to point out that it's a bad idea. But yeah. And, and, and so, um, so without getting too deeply into that sort of stuff, um, uh, so having having worked at um, Media Five, which is now DBI, um, and has been for some time, um, I uh, what was good about that was, and what was good about the process of working for these various um, uh, commercial companies, commercial design companies, was that I met people, mm -hmm. I learned about the industry in Queensland, learned about who who's who in the zoo, sort of thing, and so. Basically, in 1991, the government here decided that it'd be a really good idea to tax the Japanese developers that were doing these big projects on the Gold Coast. Mm. I think that was a factor. And, and, and there was sort of suddenly there was a sort of recession kind of thing in the industry. This pullback in the industry and the company that I'd been working for, Media 5, had about 150 people. And... Um, and they retrenched everybody. Mm. Suddenly, they re basically the work stopped. The projects were just put on hold. So they retrenched everybody. And when they did that, the interesting thing about that was that, and this goes back to part of a part of what we we're talking about before about people working all sorts of hours when they work for these big companies. There's a lot of sycophants there. So a lot of people that came in, they were wearing suits, they had ties on, and um, and, and they would come in, you know, at 7 o'clock in the morning and they wouldn't leave till 10 o'clock at night. Mm. And they'd talk. They'd talk to each other. They'd talk to the management and so on. But the people who actually doing the work, a lot of them were, you know, there was, there was one guy. He was an old surfer. He had hair down to his bum, you know. Um, and he was in my section. And um, that guy called Greg Lark, he was very clever, very clever guy, but, you know, he looked like he... Um, he looked, he looked like, like an old hippie, you know, he looked like, you know, I said, no, I better not, no, I won't go down into it too far, but you, you get you get where I'm going with this. And and I used to come in in shorts and, and it was the one year they, they sensibly 
had daylight saving in Queensland just that one year. Oh, I wish they kept it. <laughs> and um, so I'd ping off at five o'clock, which was, you know, a four o'clock mm. and go for a surf. Fantastic, yeah. you know. But these other people would hang around. Mm. And so when, when um, um, you know, things went off the rails with, uh, with the, the client base, um, they suddenly just retrenched everybody. And in my case, um, I, you know, I was pretty friendly with some of the associate directors and they said, you know, basically I was a casual dresser. Nothing about what I was actually producing, but I was a casual dresser. So therefore, yeah. I did, you know, obviously not, not professional. Mm. Um, well, the thing is that they got left with these suits. Well, the suits didn't have a clue. Yeah. So, so suddenly they realised that they had all these suits, that, but they weren't the designers. They weren't the people doing the work. Yeah. We trenched all the people actually doing the work, mm. including myself. You do find that with offices a lot where there's like always people who kind of are there all day, but they're not actually doing that much. And no. then like a lot of the time they're the people that are thought of as the, you know, the best because they're spending all the time, even if their work's very limited. Yeah. And they're taking the credit for the ideas, of course. That's the other side of the coin. So they're they're presenting the ideas more often than not to management, you say. Yeah. They're not drawing them up, but they're presenting the ideas. So the assumption is that the, the ideas were theirs. Mm. Um Actually, one other thing that I learned too was that, which was useful um, down the track, was that they would have um, they'd have reps come in, and the rep to to do to talk about, you know, the product that they wanted to sell, and um, and I, this leads into a little story about you know how what it's like to work in those places. But um, they had these reps come in, and the reps would provide lunch and stuff. Well, most of the time, people wouldn't be paying attention hmm. so you know and I, I i watched the various reps and how they presented their their ideas um, to the group or their products to the group and i, I kind of learned a bit about you know what you needed to do to get that get attention from from the people that you're talking to you know a few jokes a few, yeah. few expletives a few somethings that just sort of you know cause them to pay attention hmm. apart from just chewing on the on the free taco you know um and the other thing that just popped into my head there was that this associated with this is that the interior designers would ask people to send samples in, and in in in, in this in, in this instance, um, a particular chair. It was a a poltrona Frau. Do you know the company? Any of the It's a it's an Italian company, and it's a very high end company that produces beautiful leather furniture. And so this red tub chair came up from down south, and I I, I remember it costing the, the chair was worth you know a thousand bucks or something. Like that. It was a lot of money. It was a really nice special chair, and um, it had upholstered legs and red leather and it's a beautifully detailed thing. Anyway, so this came up, and the um, the head interior designer said, you know, can you copy that? Can you copy that thing? I said, I can copy that thing, but someone sent that up. I mean, someone that sent that to us, you know, I think it had cost 300 bucks or something like that to freight the thing up. You know, this is back in ADS, probably mm. a fair bit of money then, you know. Um, and like they were, they were plonking themselves on it. They were, you know, it's getting ink stains on it. I mean, you know, like it was, 
I, 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 was, I was outraged. <laughs> I mean, I just thought it was just so such poor and unprofessional way mm. for someone to act. And so, and, and you know, very disrespectful of that person who'd gone to the trouble of sending the chair. They had no intention of buying those chairs, no intention at all. They simply wanted to copy the bloody thing, which yep. I just was outrageous. And I don't know whether it's like that now, and I don't want to cast those sort of nasturtiums, as they say, but that was the attitude at the time. And um, and, you know, and they'd happily get stuff, they'd happily, you know, send something to China and get it built there for a fraction of what it could be done in Australia without even considering that, you know, we have a manufacturing industry and how important it is to Australia. They just didn't give a toss about any of that stuff. So... That was, a, that was a big lesson learned, and that was part of the reason. Um, and whilst I was there, there was also a section that was doing, um, la you know, landscape architecture. And, uh, and, and watching those guys, it was, a different, it was a different attitude that they had to the interior designers. Mm. So the whole process of working in those companies was giving me a whole, whole breadth of, um, of experience that was, you know, totally invaluable when after that sort of after getting retrenched at that time um i i went and worked for a guy called um steve wise wise iron he's up at toowoomba he's a bit of sort of hippie iron mongery type of person and um i would drive up there in my old combi on a on a on a uh, on a sunday night camp in the combi <laughs> and um and um he had an old ablutions block he scored and I'd just sleep in my combi and I'd, and I'd work as a designer for him. And so we're doing all these forged iron things. So I, I, I'd, I'd made the connection when I was doing Royal Pines Resort, I'd design um, for the presidential suite, kind of everything. So from the, the door finishes, the door handles, the door knobs, the all the cabinetry, um, the di dining table, the chairs, um, the light fittings and it's the light fittings and the light fittings were made in hand slump glass and uh, and um, this guy Steve Weiss's company had made had made the um, uh, the drawings that I'd given them he he'd made up the um, the steel um, structures that were part of the so so there were up lights there were hanging lights there were torsios on the wall and I designed all those mm. using hand forged steel and slump and hand, hand slump glass um and so i got to know the guy and so that's sort of kind of how the job came about and so i'm i'm, I'm working with him and i'm designing um hand forged steel i've done a couple of restaurants and things like that i've done little torsier designs um wall sconces and stuff like that but I'm thinking, you know, about what I should do next myself, and I'm thinking about all the things I've learned mm. and uh, and all the things I've done, and and I'm sort of reverted back to, you know, Hobart, the street furniture thing. Um, uh, also, as a as a whilst I was lecturing in Launceston, I'd done um, um, some furniture for Franklin Square in Hobart as as a job um, as a project. So I'd actually had a bit of a, a dabble my, I had a bit of a dabble in street furniture even then, even though I was doing the sort of designing wood thing, and that was made of cast metal and timber. Mm. 
So I actually had a bit of a go at it. So I suppose I'd already, you know, kind of been thinking around that idea, but it was, I didn't consider it particularly glamorous and I was more interested in, you know, doing sort of furniture for homes and for offices and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but you know, having th- having had the experience of the interior designers and sort of seen how they treated suppliers in that industry and so on, I kind of concluded that the landscape architects were a kind of group of people and, and, and also there really wasn't anything much in the market at all in the way of street furniture, especially not in the way of custom street furniture. There wasn't yeah. anything, no. Yeah zero so I thought well you know nothing ventured nothing gained kind of thing and I kind of figured if I if I did it for a few years I might convince people of my worth as a designer and maybe someone would take the business off my hands give me a job or just give me a nice little payout or something like that I don't know what I thought but you know I didn't really think I'd be doing street furniture still 31 years later I didn't I didn't think that was going to happen like that um so, so um, I had a bit of money saved from working for Media Five, and and um, and one of the people I'd worked with uh, on Royal Pines Resort was a guy called Mark Jukas, and he he was a salesman, and um, he was selling some furniture. I designed a couple of pieces for him that went into Royal Pines Resort that he he built. So he came into the business with me initially. Um, and the idea was that I would design things and he would sell them. And so we set up shop in Arthur Street um, in what was the design centre there, which is an old wool store down the bottom end of the street there, near Commercial Road. And um, and away we went. And it and uh, oh, actually no, yeah, yes, yes, away we went there. That's right, we started there. So so. So that sort of, it started out, um, the furniture sold to some degree, um, but my, 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 my colleague, my, my um, uh, co-proprietor was a bit inclined to enjoy a joint and a, and a, um, and a, and a bottle of wine, you know, uh, at lunchtime. Mm. <laughs> uh, he was a nice guy, but not terribly focused. And I had this, had this weird experience where I went to the bank um, in New Farm, Westpac, Dale Kurtz was the bank manager's name. And Dale said to me, he said, look, I reckon you're onto something here. I reckon this could go somewhere. But that partner of yours, he said, he's no good. You get rid of him and I'll give you an overdraft. Mm-hmm. And I mean, can you imagine a bank manager doing that these days? Yeah. And taking that risk of, 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 of making a statement like that? Mm-hmm. And I took this on board and I went back and I said, I said to Mark, I said, look, mate, you've got to pull your finger out. You know, there's opportunities here. And he said to me, he said, the only good designers come out of Italy. That's what he said to me. Mm. I said, well, you know, if that's your attitude, um, obviously, you know, this is going to go nowhere. So uh, he put in a few dollars. I put in most of the money. I owned the IP. Uh, he said, look, just give me back the money I've... Um, I've given you and we'll we'll call it quits. I thought, yeah, okay. But, you know, I was wise enough to get my accountant to just check on the business and see what it was worth and mm. and um and it was worth nothing. Mm. But I, I probably wouldn't have started the business without his encouragement. Mm. And you know, I was fond of the guy, you know, I'd spent some time with him and I was fond of the guy, but nevertheless, you know, business is business and 
Um, and clearly, you know, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I, um, so I went back to him and I said, okay, you put in five grand. Here's five grand. No, he said, no, I want $50,000 and I want, um, I want 50% of the, um, the, the, um, the, the profit of the business for the next five years. I went, bloody hell, what am I going to do? So I went to my solicitor and he said, okay, well, the business is worth nothing. You've only just started, it's worth nothing. Um, you know, you can just start, you can you know, choose a new name, you can wind up the current company structure, you can start again. And I said to him, well, I could do that, but that would be pretty dishonest. I mean, the guy did encourage me, probably wouldn't have done it. I can sort of see it's got potential. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's worth something to me as it is. Um, the name's already been kind of semi-established. So I said, you know, I, I, I want to give him something, um, but obviously I can't give him what he's asked for. Hmm. I said, so what are you prepared to go? I said, well, I'll double his money. I'll give him 10,000 bucks. You're a, you're a fairer man than most. <laughs> And uh, my solicitor said, you're crazy, but okay. He said, it was, I think, about 10 in the morning. He said, I'll give him to 12 today to make up his mind. <laughs> it's 10,000 bucks or nothing. Yeah. Um, so he took the 10,000 bucks. And I thought, okay, well, I've done the right thing here. You know, I've done the right thing here. I always feel okay about this. So I, I went into the office and I was feeling, you know, like, you know, I've done the right thing as and he put his face up to mine. He said, you miserable C. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. um, what can I say? Sometimes you can't help people. Um, uh, am, I just, am I just to discuss a few talking points now? Um, just to get yeah, you sure. I, I will just ramble on otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. It's been great to get your background on, on, on the starting of the business book. Um, just to talk to your design process. What, how do you what process do you specifically follow when looking to design furniture or urban furniture in the in the area okay so um a lot of our furniture is custom design mm. so what we what we do is we look for something that's um, unique to that particular place so or something something that's um, considered unique about that place could be from the built environment um, could be from the natural environment mm. uh, could be just you know something that is is sort of how how people feel about the place. So, so for example, a good a good example of this one, probably the best example of this one in recent times would be Winton's Main Street that we did with RPS Group. Um, Andrew Green, as he was then, he's now with Wild Studio. Bit of a bit of a pump there for Andrew. Um, so Andrew asked um, us to design um, furniture for that particular place. Um, now, Qantas was established there, arguably. Longreach says it was there. Uh, Winton says it was there. Um, the first meeting was in Winton, apparently. Uh, Walsing Masilda was conceived there as well. Uh, the dinosaur thing, you know, the design dinosaur centre um, uh, is, uh, is associated with Winton. It's at Winton. Um, opal mining, sheep. Uh, so basically, in, in that instance, uh, budgery guys actually as well but uh, so a combination of those things um, became the basis for ideas that are functional 
functional ideas, um, so sensible ideas, but the the um, the shape structures become wing-like for Qantas. Uh, they have birds incorporated into it in a pattern. The seats have kind of like a corrugated iron come come three-pronged toe dinosaur thing happening. W for Winton, if you like, as well. Mm. Um, the um, sheep are still sheep, sheep, sheep. Mm. Um, the outside the pubs, I did leaning rails because of the yarn thing, you know, bossing uh, material, having a yarn. So, so most of those sort of things, most of those those um, those type of projects. Um, if you look at something like Bullcock Beach, it was about Pumstone Passage. It's about everybody being able to see, so see out to the water. So the tables are tapered. There's a pattern in the tables, which is based on the Norfolk pine trees, which were planted there for ships' masts back in the day, mm. um, uh, and shoals of fish because people fish there. You know, there's there's sort of basic, understandable, but kind of abstract, mm. abstract ideas, uh, you know, come into play. For something like Rockhampton, it would be water flow, air flow, and... Um, and um, an activation at night time. So seats become, have a lot of perforation in them. Uh, perforation was devised from um, some air vents that we saw in the old buildings because we wanted at least some reference to the old buildings, but not to clash with them. Yep. Sort of federation buildings there. The, the seats need to allow for water flow in flood. Um, they needed to allow for airflow in the heat. And the best time to be there is at night time. So they turn into lanterns at night time. So there's um, a lot of that kind of thinking. You know, for miles recently, it was bottle trees. So the furniture has sort of like a reference to bottle trees. Mm. So in a way, you inspire your process through your background in art, in a way, to see it from more of a conceptual front opposed to like a purely practical design front. Yeah, that's right. So my, if you look at if you look at um, our website and you look at the furniture, you'll see that there's a fairly strong art bias. Yeah, one thing I noticed about your furniture as well, I was in South Bank yesterday, and I'm walking along, and I'm like, I bet, I bet you that's one of his furniture pieces because I, and then I looked, and yeah. sure enough, it was, and it's because yeah. it has such a distinct style. Like you have a very strong brand language around like the kind of designs you do. Mm. Probably, yeah. I mean, you know. Um, Yes, I, I try. I try to for points of difference, of course, but there's there's a basic um, formula for things to perch people's bottoms on. You know, there's a there's a basic sort of angle, height, angle of the back, depth of seat. So there's a there's there's you know basics there, and then beyond that, um, as I say, it really comes down to the aesthetics. Really come down to what. Um, you know, what says something about that place? Um, it's about materials as well. What's, you know, what's suitable, heat, heat dispersion, all those kind of things come into play. So, um, and um, yeah, the, I think, I think there probably is some sort of consistency of, of sort of thinking, um, you know, I, I work as creative director, but I give I give my guys a fair bit of leeway in what the final outcome is. But I would say that you know a lot of the ideas have been driven by a sketch or an idea or even some words that I've given them. Mm. And so, 
I suppose, you know, give a designer his own company and, you know, that's kind of what's going to going to happen. A lot of the time as a manager, I feel like that's a very powerful skill to have, being, being knowing when to actually give the designer the, you know, the control. Mm. Yeah, well, I've always thought it was important to, um, you know, I, I didn't have it happen for me when I worked for, for people. I, I didn't get recognition for the work that I did. And as I pointed out, that translated into being retrenched from a company where, in fact, I was doing a good job for them mm. and they simply didn't know. Yeah. So um, with my guys and with the people that have worked here, um, you'll see that their names pop up in relation to the designs. Mm. I kind of took it a little bit too far. I kind of I kind of took my finger off the pulse a bit too far and that caused me some problems with staffing mm. because they started to think that I was a useless old kid, you know, that I'd been around too long that I no longer had a good idea to share kind of thing, uh, which was not the case. And 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 evaluating sort of the work that they'd done that they thought that they'd done themselves. In fact, there was a lot of, I've got sketches to prove that in fact the original concept was mine. But the 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 point was that I kind of figured that sooner or later people do move on and mm. and that um if you've if you've given them um some credibility through literally saying that they were involved in that particular project that that would help their careers and that was that was that was sort of what was behind what I did it as I say it wasn't necessarily a good idea in it in in its own way but I won't stop doing it mm. um you know it's it's I think, um, you, you, you know, you do hope that people respect, you know, why you do these things. It doesn't always happen, but that's what you hope for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, to, in, in terms of sustainability, we kind of already spoke to it before, but I'd like to touch on it a bit further. Um, mm -hmm. As we spoke, you know, currently the trends in furniture design aren't necessarily the best for longevity and, you know, sustainable manufacturing in general. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that in the future we'll move back towards these more sustainable processes of using, you know, actual wood as opposed to MPF <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, you know, using metal opposed to plastic, things like this? Look, I think it's a matter of what's appropriate for the particular location. And unfortunately, people do do not understand that MDF, you know, is, is, is a sponge in, to all intents and purposes and that it does soak up humidity. But um it's, it's it's a mindset, isn't it? And it's 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 a price-driven thing as well. Um, what I found with our furniture, um, you know, we work with the likes of Lend Lease and Hutchinson Builders, and you know these big companies, Stockland and so on. Um, now, initially, they're you know when we give them a price for something, you know they're not necessarily all that excited because it's kind of expensive, but. Our ideas are often often presented by a, a third party, like a architect or a landscape architect, um, and what they're doing is they're saying, "Well, you're going to get longevity here, and you're going to get a point of difference." Yeah. And once they get past the, once they see the dollars is not nearly as important as the point of difference, mm. and how and and how that affects the dollars that they can get for the product they're selling which is the land and houses or whatever um after a while the cost of our furniture becomes negligible in the face of the insane amount of money they're going to make from the overall overall project so for us um we can get away with um using good materials like um it's south back and all the seats you saw there but if it was a seat the 
the um, the sort of green plastic concrete seat down near the wheel of Brisbane, but um, the seat slats on that, they're reversible. Mm. So they countersunk both sides. You can flip them over, get another 15 years out of them. It's also first first run plastic is fully recyclable. Mm. Um, so, but a lot of our work um, is about building things to last. Mm. There's a lot of my furniture that I did right from the outset still around, like heaps of it. Yeah. In fact, most of it is still around. So the street furniture design for Brisbane CBD, which was one of my first major commissions, uh, they, they, it's a lot of the old cast, it was done in cast metals. Um, the cast metal thing was a, a reference to traditional street furniture and um, it was a process that was readily available at the time here in Brisbane's and mm. because of environmental issues, it's much harder to do now. But the the process is pretty efficient. Um, that street furniture, actually, incidentally, has been changed to a fabricated steel and a steel process, so it's now fabricated. Now, I mean, it costs more than the cast metal. Mm. Um, more people can build it, but it's... Um, when, when you're cutting up a piece of steel to do what they, with a, with a cast metal thing, you pull the metal in a hole, uh, you use all that metal. You don't throw any away. Whatever's, whatever's left from the process is cut off, chucked back in the cauldron, recycled, put into the next piece. There's no waste. Mm. When you're doing something laser cut, um, folded, making up whole lots of bits of piece and you're welding it together, if you're not considering how it's going to nest into the sheet of Metal, you're wasting an awful lot of material. Yeah. Um, and so, um, uh, un unfortunately, you know, you have your ups and downs. And so I was in with Brisbane City Council, and then I wasn't in with Brisbane City Council. So, you know, you don't always, and and the reason I'm not in with Brisbane City Council is a very good one, if you, if you don't mind me yeah. um, talking about this. Um, and it's about design. Mm. The reason I'm not, I, I lost, um, credibility with Brisbane City Council was about design and basically what happened was that they decided they wanted to do um, a new uh, accessible drinking fountain and they wanted to sort of be an art piece as well which was a nice idea you know fine um, but as an industrial designer I thought well the first point of I'd already done some disability accessible drinking fountains and I'd sort of worked with a guy in a wheelchair to design those um, so I had a pretty good clue as to how they should function and you know there's a sort of thing about you know the strength of someone's hand the weight of their hand so I'd end up incorporating levers and stuff like that to get mechanical advantage and you know certain width to allow for um, access in a wheelchair and you know thin so that the um, there was plenty of clearance and I had, I had a, a, a good long hard think about it and I'd worked with this guy in a wheelchair and he tested all the but when the council thing came out I thought well this is a really prime opportunity to really do this properly you know mm. make up a jig work out exactly um, the best format for this um, for this drinking fountain so that it's the most effective configuration you know height you know all, all elements of it from a design perspective um, would deliver water to that person's mouth as efficiently as possible and 
that you know the process of delivering that water through mechanisms and so on will be you know totally considered. Mm. So I kind of knew that was sort of a criticism of council's uh, process if I if I explained this to them, but and I agonised over whether whether doing. I knew there was egos involved, and I knew it could be a problem for me. But I thought, you know, I've got to be honest about this, and this is what I think. So I wrote, um, I wrote an email, or actually probably a fax at that stage, to council, and I explained all this to them. I explained, you know, my thinking behind it, and and I mean, the thing had already gone out to tender and so on. It's, you know, without that, but it, it wasn't it wasn't too late, really. Mm. I mean, it could have been done as an addendum sort of thing, without it being a problem. Yeah, and and I offered to help out with that process. I offered to you know get an engineer to help with the process of working this thing out. Mm. Well, I got a call on a Sunday from David Hinchliffe actually, um, criticizing criticizing me for criticizing council. Like I got a real real ass kicking for my trouble. Like I really got into some serious trouble over this. Mm. Um, I think this is a bit of a problem with councils and governments sometimes they don't take criticism very well no so so basically i didn't get i didn't get a goal i didn't get to design this fountain for i wasn't one of the people selected to do the fountain and 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 there was another problem with a project and uh where the local community selected colors for this it's it's a carina and the local community selected colors for this furniture that i designed for them and sort of um, greens and browns and the furniture was painted and it was coming up to Christmas and it was ready to install and a guy from council came back to me and said I want to change the colours to blue and grey I said mate you know the, it's finished it's ready to install and you know we, we've all been to these community groups and the community groups decided on the colours that they want well I don't like them so I want to change the colours I said, I said well I, you know, it can be done, but I can't do it straight away. And, and um, you know, I mean, there'll be a cost involved. Mm. I know it's your fault, my fault. I said, how do you see that? Well, you know, it, it doesn't matter. The thing is, you know, there's a budget and, you know, we need to repaint it and you have to do it at your cost. I said, well, honestly, that's, you know, a bit unreasonable. You know, do you think we could have a discussion about this. And they basically said to me, you know, either you do it or you don't get any work from council again. So I had to do it. But the thing is, I had to do it. I did it, but I didn't get any more work from council. Like I'd upset them. So, and it wasn't my fault. So it was bloody unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah. And, One thing with Brisbane and, Council is I feel, well, like design <laughs> in general is it's not particularly designed very well at all. No. No, no, it isn't. No, it is. All you got to do is look at the Gold Coast um, lights when you drive on the motorway. Yeah, great design. <laughs> Crazy design, those ones. They just you can't even read them. Just... Yeah, you can't even read it. And then there's like, and then there's also our like basically complete lack of transportation, public transportation, considering how big our city is now. Well, and the Goldies sort of did these concrete seats. I mean, a concrete seat is a heat sink. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's pretty hot. It's just stupid. 
Don't say too much, David, because they do a lot of concrete seats. But it doesn't it doesn't stack up, you know. Like concrete seats are in in this climate here are just stupid, and, and down south it's just as silly because effectively they become a cold sink. Yeah, you know, uh, and they're not you know they're not good to sit on in in in, in cool weather. They're, they're basically a bad idea. Mm. Um, but we do a lot of them. So shut up, David. You know. <laughs> Uh, can you talk about the process of working with manufacturers and suppliers to bring a design to life? Uh-huh. So I feel like that's an important part of furniture design, being able to understand the processes and, you know, design for the processes specifically. So, yeah, maybe if you could speak to that. Yeah. Um, we're very fortunate here in um, in Brisbane in particular uh, and in southeast Queensland and, and northern New South Wales to have some fantastic um manufacturers some really good manufacturers i mean it's not that they don't cop things up from time to time but overall the facilities are there mm. um i mean it pays to design to the facilities you've got but we have got a lot of different different types of facilities that we have access to and generally speaking they're pretty efficient yeah uh, they you know they're not they're not as cost effective as getting something in from overseas of course they're not but um, I've taken the view that we should support local manufacturing because if we yeah. don't, we simply won't have those facilities available yeah. to us. So, um, so we basically build everything locally. Um, yeah. And um, I mean, they rise to the occasion. I mean, they they you know we needed to be able to bead blast things, so they you know they um, um, bought in a bead blast. We needed to do some um, tube laser cutting, so they got a tube laser. Um, I mean, obviously, we give them a decent volume of work and they can use it for other clients and so on, but they've been very responsive to mm. um, to sort of the ideas that we have, and it's just extraordinary what they can build. We, we did a, we recently did a, a rubbish bin, you know, to get excited about rubbish bin. We recently did a rubbish bin for miles, mm. town centre. And, I mean, the thing is just, if I'm allowed to say so, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful this object. Joke, this is the joke in design. You see a really nice design rubbish bin and you respect it. This, this is down to our ideas, I'd like to think, but it's also down to the quality of manufacturing. It's, mm. it's just beautifully built. Yeah. The, 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 you know, the gaps, the join lines, everything's just perfect. Mm. The only cock-up is that they put the hinges on the outside instead of the inside. And I, I don't know how that happened. So I've, I've I've photoshopped it out in my, <laughs> but but maybe, maybe you can say it was on purpose. It gives it a bit of a you know I don't know. No, it, look, it's just wrong because it's not even rounded in the corners. Uh, you know, there's no there's no detail there. You know, like and and I, I love detail. So there's yeah. you know, it's, but but other than that, I mean, really, you know, I, I kind of looked at those things and a couple of other things we did up there, and I just thought. It's just incredible what we can build here in Brisbane. You know, we did these quite complex seat ends in flat metal bar, and they're they're they're, they're three dimensional. Mm. And I mean, I don't know whether we could actually build it, and they did. And you, you know, it's got a few joints and things, but you can't see them. Mm. They've, they've blended all in perfectly. It's just incredible. So yeah, you know, I couldn't do that in Los Angeles. Yeah, I couldn't. I'd have to go to Kalamazoo or somewhere like that. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get the resources we've got here in in a relatively small geographic. I couldn't get in mm. America. 
Yeah. So it's 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 amazing. Um, the skill level and and the facilities that are available is incredible here in Brisbane. Yeah, I think I think you're in a way you're in a, like a lucky space because I feel like with traditional product design, it can be quite hard to not um, manufacture overseas due to like mm. small scale um, organizations that can't afford to produce in Australia. But because a lot of your clients are like government bodies and, and you know large organizations, yeah, you, you can, which is really good. Yeah, yeah. So we can we do bigger projects and. We do projects that last for sometimes for 15, 20, 30 years. So we do housing estates that just keep on going. So we produce um, volumes of product and we have them ready to go um, as they require them. So we we, we actually, we actually stockpile some, some product. We do it. One of our main things is actually the drinking fountain. It's a drinking fountain, you know, I was grizzling about. So one of our main products is a drink fountain. We don't sell them to Christmas Council. We sell them to everybody else. Um, brilliant design, of mm. course. Um, um, and um, uh, that, you know, that thing um, is quite complex, but we can we can build that here without any problems, you know. Mm. And um, uh, so we, we generally make multiples of those. And we sell them regularly. Um, and probably what would be nice, we're, we're, we're hoping to, to, you know, do a bit more uh, overseas. And if we do, we'll be able to probably get an industrial designer <laughs> to design a new mechanism for it for us. Mm. At the moment, we're using sort of off-the-shelf components, which are not absolutely ideal mm. for the delivering of the water. They, they do the job and, you know, they're well, reasonably well considered within the constraints of what they're their limitations are but uh, would be really good to do our own and have you know that that sort of side of the product um um sorted out mm. great so that's something that you know i'm hoping mm. that we can do if we um if we get into more volume um in, in somewhere like you know the yep. states uh, as far as collaborating with interior designers, do you still collaborate with other interior design agencies or do you see yourself more as a industrial design focused organization now? Um, or a blend of both? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you, it's we'll, we'll, we'll pretty much do anything. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly this office here designed everything pretty much. Yeah, but yeah I found it really amazing when I was there looking <laughs> around. You can see all these little, even on the door. <laughs> The, the door handle you can see you guys yeah. that yeah it's really cool uh, even the toilet roll holders and they're, and they're set up so you can put a beer on them oh that's great <laughs> yeah. I, I even did the, the the vase in the the bathroom I, I got a local glass blower to to to, to do a shape because I couldn't get the shape I wanted so I made got one made um so we could do a lot of more interior work if if people are interested in doing it. So it's a different area. And as I said, from the outset of this conversation, it's a much tougher area. There's a lot of people sort of in that area, it's sort of considered fairly glamorous. And the reality is that, you know, it is, it's dollar driven mm. uh, a lot more so than what we do. Um, but um, from time to time, people ask us, you know, they see what we've done here and, and, and you know, there's potential in that area, but um, um you know, by request, I would I would certainly be interested in doing it. Um, I, mostly, what I've done is my own offices. You know, um, mm. and I, we've done a few domestic sort of 
gates and stuff like that. But they're still kind of more or less street furniture related or related to you know our external works. Hmm. Um, we could probably be doing. We, well, we could definitely be doing. Um, uh, you know, cafe furniture and stuff like that. But the, but a lot of those things are really seriously price driven. Hmm. A hundred dollar chair kind of thing. Well, you can't do much for a hundred bucks and sell it for a hundred bucks. You know, you just can't do it. So, so you know, most of that stuff's imported, which is unfortunate. I mean, what we can do is picnic settings and stuff like that. Mm. But we can't, you know, we can't compete with tables and things like. That. We have done them. We've done them for. We did a a job at Sealy for Sealy mattress people, and we did all their table things. So we did buy chairs, but we did um, picnic settings and and um, tables and stuff for those guys mm. yeah okay uh do you have any advice for aspiring industrial designers slash entrepreneurs looking to start their own business maybe even myself <laughs> well if, if you're listening to the outset of my conversations i know you were mm. um what i was trying to say to you there was of course uh, you know, there's nothing like a bit of experience and one way of getting that experience is to go and work for other people and and suck it up a bit, you know. Um, yeah. It's, you, you know, you've, you've I think, um, uh, your own work, you know, uh, to continue to design things yourself. Um, understanding processes and um, find, finding resources that will allow you to, um, allow you to build the things that you you, you want to build um, you know even in, in small volumes um, there's people that can do that or certain processes that can you can use that to, to, to do that I mean just you know evaluating evaluating um, um, evaluating you know who can do what in, in your local area and, and of course offshore potentially as well mm. um, I mean so so to put this in a little bit of perspective from my point of view, something I didn't talk about is that when I was a student, um, I, uh, I wanted to do what you're talking about. I wanted to do some product right back then. So the first thing I did was um, a chair, so like an Ikea chair, but one that actually lasts. So this one was made of steel. And what I, what I, what I did was I um, the first few prototypes, I went to an exhaust pipe manufacturer and they folded up some two inch tube for the sides of the seat and some some um 25 mil tube for the for the frame internal frame of the seat so it's like a cantilever seat like a like one of those um laminated seats at ikea mm. laminated side seats that are a similar sort of seat to that canvas sling um you know um foam cushions and so on so so with that thing um so the, the initial learning curve was um, uh, draw the thing up, um, find resources to build it. Uh, so I, I found a lady that could do the sewing and stuff like that. Um, um, I, I got some little labels made up in Melbourne. So it had a tag on it, like a you know, Levi's tag or whatever, you know. Um, so it had that sort of professional look to it. I got some boxes made up um, with uh, logos on them. I had a friend of mine at college do a logo for me so the idea was that I would present this product as a as a you know a proper professional product mm. that came from a bigger company in, in not my backyard you know yep. 
Um, so eventually I, f- I went to a company called Tube Makers who were still around and they had sort of some semi CNC, I don't, know, I don't know what it would have been. It would have been mechanical, wouldn't have been computerized, but they could fold up all the parts. But to do it, I had to buy this massive amount of parts, you know. Mm. So I got this bloody great big box turns up with all these greasy bits of metal in it, you know. Um, and uh, but all bent up to the right shape and all that. So it's my first sort of shot at a bit of mass production, you know. Mm. Um, and as I say, I'd found someone who could cut up the fabric. And um, and I so I got zippers from YKK because you the fabric had little sleeves and you'd slide your sides into it, um, the front and back, and then pull up this flap and pull across the zipper and that held the thing together. Um, I got some little injection molded saddles made so that the the sides be, between the 20, uh, 50 mil and 25 mil um, tube, um, I had some little saddles so that they would sit nice and square. Um, I got some bolts from Unbreako, um, some, so, um, uh, you know, uh, hex head bolts. Mm. Um, um, so I had to source the, I sourced the canvas from someone in Melbourne, um, zips from YKK, injection molded components, um, foam from a foam place that sort of cut it up for me. Um, and then I would go down and, and the lady that did the, um, did the upholstery, I'd go down with the Paris and she told me what scissors to buy with down, I'd cut out all the patterns and then she would sew it up. Mm. Boxed it all up. I managed to sell them to people like Myers and David Jones. They didn't realise I was this, you know, one one person. They thought that they were from some sort of corporate. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the end, end, end cap plugs, I had to get those made as well. So, you know, like fully, fully, fully presented, um, um, you know, professionally presented product and I got away with it mm. but it really wasn't cost effective I and mean, I wasn't making a cracker out of it but I learned a lot I learned yeah. about not having too many components and how much hassle it was to bring yeah. all things together and yeah. like I said it was painting involved and there was chroming involved and mm. there was a whole lot of shit that I had to do to make this thing work you know mm. um, but you know I, I learned a lot from that so the second thing I did was a, a wall clock now the wall clock only required the box piece of timber uh, a face um glass and a mechanism so and and if i if i use that same piece of timber for a bowl it was worth 30 dollars and if i made it into clock it was worth 100 150 dollars mm. same piece of timber with a, a minor addition and a minor cost addition for the components to make it into a clock mm. um and then i I scored an old lathe and I turned it into a faceplate lathe so I could turn the things up quickly uh, on on the lathe. And then I found someone in South Australia, Hammersmith Woodturning, who could do the things on a on a uh, on a, a lathe that held the timber on with air pressure. Mm, okay. Uh, they could do repetition for me, so I could send the timber over to them. And they could produce these these um, the the sort of wooden surround, this wooden sort of wall clock that mm. I was doing. Um, but certain timbers were so porous that the air would suck through them and they wouldn't stay on the face. So everything you're doing is, you, you know, you're learning something. Like I did a multicolored face to start off with and it was a lot more expensive than the black and white, you know, that was pretty logical, but, mm. and I found different person to print them. And so, so, um, 
So that process, um, and that sort of all happened before I went overseas when I got my grant. And then everything else that I spoke about came after that. But so I'd already dabbled in that idea uh, of being an entrepreneur and, and, and selling these products. And I'd sold those clocks in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. And, um, you know, I'd roll up in, I'd, I'd, I'd um, you know, fly to Sydney. I'd hire a car. I'd roll up with a box full of boxes of clocks. I'd go into a little shop that was selling knickknacks and, and I'd, 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 I'd go in and, and, and they'd smile because um, they thought they were going to sell me something. And then their face would go like this because I was going to try and sell them something. So then I had to convince them that what I was selling them was, you know, worth having. Mm. And, 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 and and like, you know, I was probably a bit cocky. I just, you know, I didn't think long and hard about it. I just sort of thought that what I was selling was worthwhile. Mm. Um, and and they'd say yes. And then I'd go to the car and bring them in, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I got repeat business. Mm. So, so, um, so basically, you know, believe in yourself, be bold, mm. find something, have a think about what you're doing, think about the processes involved, um, the complications involved, think about something that has value added to it. Um, that's, you know, so in, in my case, I was talking about a bowl and a clock, you know, the mm. difference between the two things, perceived value. Yeah. It's like the difference between a chair and a and a bed, mm. for example. A bed's bigger, but takes no more time to build than a bloody chair. But a chair's worth a whole lot less. Mm. Same thing with a table. So you know, you think about the object, um, you know, its functionality, and um, and its perceived value, mm. and look at sort of the um, the existing market for something similar. You design something better. Hmm. Uh, or more interesting or funky or whatever it might be. Um, and then and then you boldly step forward and promote it. I mean, these days you've got much more, uh, more avenues to promote it, but the best form of promotion is still face-to-face. -face. doesn't yeah. matter what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Social media, doesn't matter what you the, do. The hard thing I'm finding now is, like, I have an idea for a um, better product from a previous – I'm not going to specifically mention it, but – from a previous right. workplace I worked at, I basically have an idea for a better product. Yeah. Um, when I worked as like a non, not a designer, just as a standard worker, um, I realized yeah. there was a problem and um, there isn't really a solution. It's ridiculously unsustainable what they're doing right now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a relatively simple solution I, from my mind on how to fix it. Um, yeah. But the, the problem I'm finding is how do you communicate with a massive corporation and try and get like to the top to talk to someone who's actually going to be able to fund it? You're a cheeky bastard. You just turn up and no, but like, there's no head office in, in Queensland. <laughs> fly okay, to, well, fly to you, Sydney. <laughs> you 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 talk about the idea. You don't present the idea in mm. its, it, itself. Yeah, okay. You talk around the idea. You don't give them. You don't even verbally give them the idea. You 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 explain the problem, and and you explain that there is a solution. Um, uh, if you've got sort of some ideas or you can do a prototype a 3d print or something like that mm. um, uh, model you say i'd like to show this to you it'll save you x amount of dollars you try and do some background on what those dollars might be what the saving could be mm. um, it could be in how it's produced it could be in 
the machinery that, that they don't need as opposed to the machinery they do need. It could be all those sort of factors. I think as well, even like from like a futurist perspective, where these big corporations are becoming more and more scrutinized for being unsustainable. So it's yeah. almost like a competitive advantage to start removing major. All right, well, you point that out to them. That's yeah. exactly what you do. Mm. And you, you explain the idea without giving the idea away. Yeah. You make them want them to become, they, they, you make, intrigue them enough so they want to talk to you. Mm. Um, um, I've got another little anecdote for you here. And maybe we're running out of time, but I've got another little anecdote for you here about, about design and sustainability and all that. Mm. And this is about, this is about being a 21 year old and having a motorcycle accident. And, uh, and, um, and being out of action for a year, uh, at least a year, uh, I, I smashed my lower limb and I, and I um, really badly, mm. like I broke both bones and, and it was reset, but it was very bad. Mm. So, um, so I found myself in a position of having to use uh, orthopedic crutches and they, they were um, clumsy because they're, you know, they're big, long things. Um, and you know, they're awkward, they're awkward. You know, like I, I had to travel on buses and stuff like that. And and if I wanted to go to the pictures or anything like that, you know, they were a bloody nuisance. Mm. So, um, and also they, you're using them a lot. They, they damage your own side of your arm. They can actually pinch your nerves and cause you some serious nerve damage and stuff yeah. like that. So um, being a potential industrial designer, an emerging industrial designer, I thought, well, this is a problem to solve. So I took a mould of my then girlfriend's armpit, and um, and I, I made it a left and a right because armpits are obviously not left and well they're left and rights, but you know they don't they're not universal. Mm. So I I um so I I I got the the general shape from doing that. Mm. I put that on a pivot so that the articulation was happening. Um, the 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 the, that was staying still whilst you're still ambulating or you're still you know, using the crutches. And um, motor mowers have a simple mechanism for the, for the way they fold the, um, you know, the pushing thing, the, mm. the handle. And so they have a little crimp idea and you just have a bolt goes through and it, and it locks the, the um, handle in, in place. So I just borrowed that idea. And I, I, I formed I formed a shape that was sort of integrally spring loaded, so the shape of the the top of the crutch was sort of like uh, 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 rounded mm. and spring loaded inte integrally, and so I could then um, put a bolt through it and put a a wing nut, um, so you could undo the wing nut and you could fold the leg up. So mm. the crutches were half the size. Um, I had a you could move the hand rest up and down as well and mm. once you once you locked up the um the lower leg of the thing and and did up the nut it also pitched the um, hand resting position so it didn't move around mm. um now i that, that i actually got on the abc inventors which was a, a, a program i had on tv back then and i presented these things i got beaten by a wooden mousetrap which is and and a water divining device on on the so I didn't I didn't you know win any prizes or anything mm. but I did get you know um, from serious exposure for this thing so I got approached by um, a company that sold sold crutches 
And the long and short of it is that although my my idea was better, way better, and much better for the end user and all that, the fact of the matter is that they were importing crutches from China or wherever for you know for next to nothing. Yeah. They were considered disposable. Mm. So uh, I made a few pairs, that was it. So it doesn't matter. So sometimes, um, so if you look at it from that perspective, bloody good idea. Yeah. But no commercial value, no commercial. Mm. It, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter that it was, you know, a better idea, no commercial value. Mm. Um, and um, so, you know, again, another little, another little learning curve for me. I suppose that's the interesting thing about design. Like sometimes you can have the best design, but if the market's not ready for it, it won't, it won't happen. No. That's right. Even with the keyboard, you know, there's a, a better keyboard design that came out in like the 50s or something. Better layout because basically one hand's using more energy than the other. Um, yeah. But it was never picked up because people were too used to the current keyboard design. So, yeah. Yeah. That's so right. uh, well, yeah, I think we'll wrap it up there because I think I think we've, yeah. we've got so much information and I'm sure <laughs> the podcast listeners will be sitting here trying to process all this information and yeah it's, it's great <laughs> thanks so much for coming on david it's been really great to get your background over sure. the last what, 40 40 years almost oh um so i as i say i finished my course in 79 but i already started designing stuff in, in by about 1975 i'd started to designing stuff so it's oh, a long time but yeah it's been a while ago and yeah well yeah thank you thank you for coming on board and yeah i'm, I'm sure we'll keep our communication open in the future no problem. Cool. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good day. I'll talk you to you too. later. See ya.